Welcome to the RCAP USA Roundup, a podcast where we have real conversations affecting both cattle producers and beef consumers. We're your hosts, Jaden Moreland and Karina Jones. With that, let's get to today's episode. This episode is sponsored by Prime Risk Management, insurance specialists serving America's farm and livestock producers. Their staff of insurance professionals are here to assist you in securing an insurance policy to protect you and your loved ones for years to come. Their job is to help you navigate through the sea of policy options and clarify any questions or concerns you may have along the way. Shopping for insurance can be difficult, but their staff does the work for you. Maintain your peace of mind knowing that Prime Risk Management's insurance professionals have your back. Visit primeriskmanagement.com for more information and make sure to like them on Facebook. Thank you Prime Risk Management for being a 2022 convention sponsor and thank you for your support. Our nation was founded on the principles of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, all of which equally apply to our everyday lives and the U.S. cattle industry all these years later. We welcome our Texas board member and property rights chair Shad Sullivan to talk liberty, freedom, globalism, and property rights. Well, it is my pleasure to welcome my dear friend, Shad Sullivan, onto the podcast. Shad is a storyteller. So, Shad, let's start with giving our listeners a quick introduction to who you are, who your family is, your operation, your family's history in the industry. Just kind of tell us about yourself. So, my name is Shad Sullivan, and uh, I am a fifth-generation beef producer from Ordway, Colorado, originally. Um, I am married to my wife of 10 years, Thea, and we have a daughter who's 28 and a seven-year-old son who's in first grade named Beatty, and um, we are a family operation um, with a headquarters in Southeast Colorado and uh, also an operation, a winter wheat grazing operation and program here in North Texas, near the little town of Olney, Texas. Our family history goes back a long, long ways, and it starts with my great-great-grandmother, a woman by the name of Leela Wright, who was settled in southern Oklahoma in North Texas around the turn of the 20th century, and um, she lost her husband and a daughter all in one week. And on his deathbed, her husband told her to go to Southeast Colorado and settle and get out of wild country. Uh, Unbeknownst to her, Southeast Colorado was still wild, but she took her seven boys up there and and, uh, one more daughter and they settled um, on the Southeast Plains in Northeast Pueblo County, really at the four corners junction of Pueblo, Crowley, Lincoln and El Paso counties. And uh, that's where we're at today. She uh, started really a agricultural um, kingdom up there, if you will, that uh, lasted many generations. And there's a few of us still left spread across there. But um, between that and my dad's side, that was on my mom's side. Um, My dad's side was they, they come there uh, around the same time, right around the turn of the century, um, and settled in the same place. And that's how our families became interwoven. Uh, many people married into either the Sullivans or the Wrights. And uh, somewhere down, you know, four, four generations down, my folks got married. And, of course, they were both from ranching families and farming families. And, and so we have a long, rich history um, with the land. And that is how we identify ourselves. Um, that is 
how we make our living and we're proud that we can do that uh basically in the same place uh for the last 100 years 100 plus years actually and so that's something that we're really proud of um, my mom and dad really uh pushed into the beef industry um when they were married in the in the 60s my dad obviously was running cattle and then he got married to my mom and they they grew and went through a lot of hardships over the years and uh you know everybody can remember the the market drop of the early 1970s uh then we've seen some some prosperity and then back into the 80s and the 80s seemed to wreak havoc on us and a lot of other producers around but we managed to to stay on we managed to hold on and um, do what we love to do and that's uh ranch on on the land that we hold so dear to our hearts and feed america and so that's really <clears throat> the long story short of how we got into the beef business we've just been in it forever and ever and um you know i don't claim that we're any experts but we take pride in saying that we have done it with cattle Yes, I love y'all's family history. So now bring us to today. Talk about like your mom's involved, your sisters are involved. Talk to us about your whole operation process because you run a pretty interesting operation. So the patriarch of our operation was my dad named Jerry Sullivan. And he was really the guy that created the whole thing. Him and my mom worked very hard together over the years and and uh, created a really, uh, really neat and um, uh, seldom used business model. And uh, what we wanted to do uh, were yearling people and how we became yearling people was back in the 50s, the 30s and the 50s, we either droughted out or um, uh, went broke in the 30s, you know, and, and I can remember my dad telling me that his dad told him it wasn't cow country. It wasn't cow country. You have to you have to let this land sit and rest. And so my dad took that and uh, in the late 1950s started running stalker cattle. And uh, we've been in that ever since. Um, and so fast forward to 2011 and he passed away uh, from cancer. And uh, my mom, the matriarch of our operation, continued to ranch. And two of us were already involved uh, after college had come back and, uh, then, uh, a third, a third sister came home after she retired from teaching to help take care of my mom and, and do ranch, you know, daily ranching duties. And so it takes a team of people to do what we do. Now, what makes our operation unique is that, um, we have this, uh, winter wheat grazing program, uh, in North Texas. And it complements our uh, short grass prairies um, uh, summer grazing program in southeast Colorado. And that's really what we want to do is we want to uh, let our country rest, you know, uh, six to nine months out of the year in southeast Colorado. Uh, and that way we can properly utilize um, those short grass prairies uh, by putting on, you know, a quick uh, and profit-filled um, gain on the on those yearlings. So it's really kind of simple. One operation does not work without the other. So we they work tandem and hand in hand, 
and uh, we have to have both to make it work. So that's really kind of uh, what's unique about our operation. Um, there's a lot of people that run stalkers um, and do basically the same thing, you know, for centuries, for at least a century and a half, we've been taking stalker cattle from the south to the north, and that's what we do. We specialize in buying a small uh, calf out of the south, and when I say small, a high-risk calf, and we like to own that calf at least 10 months, 10 to 12 months, and grow him out for a, for a full year. And we'll buy a heifer or a steer, either one. Uh, back in the old days that we were predominantly just a heifer operation, feeder heifer. And then um, as time move forward, we have to change a, a few things that, that uh, require us to do some changing and uh, keep up with the times. So we, we run a few steers now, but we buy those cattle. Uh, they're procured out of the South for us uh, by one person. They sent to our, north texas facility where we wean them we run them and graze them on wheat through the winter and then in the spring we go to our grass in southeast colorado and we utilize that as a summer grazing operation and then we sell those animals we rarely take um and uh, those cattle and finish them all the way through it's just not part of our program it's high risk takes a lot of capital and we want to stay out of that feeding feeding business so we like to basically buy them small sell them heavy and watch them grow in between. We take a lot of pride in what we do. So you are the region five director representing Texas um, and also our property rights chair for RCAF. Um, and you are a lot of the reason why I work for RCAF. So why don't you tell us how you got involved with RCAF USA? Well, my dad was always a member of RCAF USA. And the reason he was, was uh, because he he believed that our checkoff was not uh, working well for us, even from the from the get go, he believed that it was taxation without representation. Um, I I was a little bit different. I went to college and and uh, got a degree and learned about the new ways of the world, right? And so uh, I didn't have really the same belief system, but I did have the same foundation. Uh, that my dad had. And uh, back in 2009, I started hearing about this crazy little initiative called the Global Roundtable for Sustainable Beef. And, you know, once I start hearing about uh, globalism and um, sustainability, my ears perk up and there was something just not right about it. So I did some studying uh, we were already seeing a downturn in the industry. Um, I, I felt like our checkoff dollars were not working in the best interest of the uh, producer. And that's what I am. I'm all for uh, uh, the local producer. I'm all for local community. And I saw these communities dying up and shriveling away. And I'm, and I'm sitting here thinking something is not right um, in what I was taught in a university situation to what is really going on out in the real world. And so uh, through a lot of interesting uh, phone calls and, and communication with people and just a lot of digging, um, I, I felt like maybe RCAF was the place for me. And, you know, uh, we had one triggered in incident in our family that, uh, 
caused us to lose a lot of land to a bureaucratic corrupt overreach and it just kind of sent me over and I wanted to do more for for producers as a producer and so that's really what led me to RCAF USA we had had a um, an initiative uh, come to us in southeast Colorado uh, called the National Heritage Area <clears throat> excuse me and um, that would have put a blanket coverage um, of heritage of a heritage system over uh, eight counties in Southeast Colorado. Well, that came to us without the landowner's knowledge. So we, so we fought that. And so I ha had had a couple of um, experiences with government overreach uh, versus private property rights. And uh, that's really what got me started in and being interested in private property rights. And that ultimately led me to RCAF USA, where I discovered that, you know, the members are all just really like me. You know, they're lovers of America. They're family people. Uh, they believe in freedom in production. They believe in, in liberty uh, across our land. And they believe that... Uh, America should be exalted by its own people, um, number one, first and foremost. And so when I learned that they were also fighting these fights, came part of them. And that's how really I got to RCAF USA. And it's been a hand in glove fit. Enjoy the people. You know, we've got 5,000 members across the country that are all very tight knit. We are, um, we see much of the, of the same things eye to eye, not everything, not always, but most generally, uh, we all see things eye to eye and we, we work on the things that are affecting producers on a daily basis. And, um, you know, when you keep all sorts of elitist money out of the coffers, you have a pure, pure, pure organization that works for the people you see the people are what keeps our calf going our producers alone keep our calf going you're you are just bonded to your members and that's where we take pride and i've really enjoyed working with the people at our usa and have enjoyed um uh representing the state of texas we're gonna try to get you know another organization going down here um uh, and I just can't say enough about the leadership, um, the staff, everyone has done it. And, you know, we do this with, I think, five, five employees. And uh, it's impressive to see what all that they can get done. And, and they're always willing to work with the board and the uh, membership all the time. And it's just, it's just a joy. Well, we appreciate you. Um, and all the work you put in. And so now kind of going back to the main issues at hand, you operate in two states who have large agriculture communities, but that isn't always necessarily recognized. Um, like, for example, the Colorado governor creating, what did they call it, the meat out day or something. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but then you have Texas cattle raisers and Texas cattle feeders largely influencing the Texas ag industry. So talk to us about ranching in Colorado and ranching in Texas and how you and your community respond to kind of those oppositions. Well, 
that's a loaded question. You know, both communities that I, uh, uh, I live in now and I grew up in, in Colorado, they are all very small town, close knit communities. We depend on local, uh, a strong local government. We, uh, we depend on a lot of anchored uh, local citizens that, that, that have been, you know, here generationally. And we take pride in, in good schools, good healthcare centers, great libraries. So it's all about community in both places. It's very, very similar. You know, as far as um, beef production goes, you know, having an operation in Texas gives me a lot more flexibility um, to do what with I need to in terms of, of protein production. You know, I have a lot, it, it provides me with a lot of uh, opportunities. And if we need to change something, we can change something. You know, the biggest difference between Texas and Colorado is, is rainfall. So I can expect 30 inches a year here in North Texas, where in Colorado, I can expect nine to 11 inches a year. And I know how to manage both, but what it does is it has spread me, it has spread my, uh, the risk of my operation into one that I can solve issues a little bit easier it it basically has diversified me uh, and our operation into adjustments right so we're able to adjust but you know when you have in terms of uh production you know influence uh, both texas and colorado has a large large um influence in the agricultural industry by many organizations, you know, you have Texas and Southwestern Cattle Raisers Association, you have Texas Cattle Feeders Association, two of the strongest um, in the state of Texas. In Colorado, you have the Colorado Livestock Association, you have the Colorado Cattlemen's Association, which is the, the oldest um, uh, cattlemen's organization in the United States, I believe. And uh, so you have a lot of elitist money and power governing um, and lobbying to make happy every everyone except the ground floor producer, and so that's where I want to. Th those are the people who I want to represent are the ground floor, the initial producers who actually own the cow, raise the calf, and put that calf somewhere down the line into our food supply chain. And uh, once you have so much. Um, money uh, affecting all of these different organizations uh, you have people <laughs> getting split up and and thinking different ways and and what it's done is it's it's taken us into an era of of anti-capitalism in other words we have centralized control of our food system uh, to make happy those with the money and power see money and power corrupt and once you get a little of money or a little of power you want more and more and so they are able to uh lobby uh those those four are able to lobby our governmental agencies um into what they want and that's what has happened and we saw a result of during covid is a centralized food system that just does not work especially under panic situations. Um, and so 
typically speaking, Jaden, there's not a lot of difference in production. Uh, cowboys and cattlemen in Colorado are much like cowboys and cattlemen on the Ano Estacado in, in Texas. Um, we're very similar and we have very similar traditions, production methods. Um, so that's a lot of fun to watch because um, you go further west and southwest and northwest and east and it's all different. But really, Texas and Colorado, very similar in production methods. And uh, so it's fun. It's fun to get to know all those all those producers in all those states. And I know a lot of people I've had a lot of fun over the years getting to know everybody, but, you know, really to answer your question, uh, productively speaking, we have to get back to grassroots production methods and we have to take the power and money and the influence that it creates out of the system to clean it up. So whenever we talk, you're always reminding me of my constitutional rights, our liberties, freedoms in this country. So tell our audience, why are liberty and freedom so important to our country and more importantly, the U.S. cattle industry? We have to define liberty versus freedom. And liberty is the state of being free within a society from oppressive restrictions placed on you by um people in authority in other words the government while freedom is the power or the right to speak think or act on your own so there's a lot of things you are free to do as an individual but you are not at liberty to do in a society and uh, the great founders of this country saw the importance of what a constitutional republic would bring to those seeking life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Uh, and they saw it clear, you know, several cent centuries into the future. The reason liberty and freedom, and I s especially say liberty, um, is so important in America is because we were founded on the principle of capitalism, a supply and demand driven marketing system. Without liberty, the liberty to produce how you see fit, the liberty to consume what is important for you to consume, there is no freedom. One cannot exist without the other. So as we see all of these centralized food um, systems coming to play more and more. We see all sorts of industries becoming more centralized. The more centralized they become, the less liberty you have received, the less freedom you incur and enjoy. And so these are the problems that we have to really recognize and we have to make a decision. Do we want to live where production is controlled top down and where uh, consumption is controlled? Because that's really where we're headed. And it's a very important um, step that they're trying to push on us in total control. And so as, as freedom-loving, liberty-loving Americans, we have to decide where is that going to be? Where is the line that we say, okay, no more? Well, I'll tell you where the line is. The line is in the beef industry. 
because the beef industry is the very last industry to be vertically integrated, to have total control from top down. We've already seen this in all other meat industries, in most agricultural industries, but there is some a semblance of, of liberty in the beef industry, and we're the last holdouts. And so it is so important, I always say, where there is beef, there is freedom. Where there is beef, there is liberty. The beef producing ranchers and farmers across America, including cattle producers, all the way down to the T-bone steak, guys selling the T-bone steak, have to decide how they want this system to work. Do they want it to work uniformly uh, and, and controlled, or do they want to create markets where markets don't exist? Are we able to create a market for something that, um, say, not everybody wants, but there is a, a niche market for? You know, for example, um, I know an old gentleman in southeast Colorado who buys um, cattle, what we would call cuts at the end of the year, cattle that are unmarketable in terms of maybe they've had a a hurt leg or something like that, that, that we can't sell. Um, is there, is there the ability, do we have the ability to create a market like that? Sure. Under in capitalism, we do, but under a controlled system, no, we don't. And so you see all of these initiatives like the global Roundtable for sustainable beef coming online, pushing production standards to be uniform and unified. Well, what, what happens with that is we no longer have um, a, a positive market for, say, something that we is more um, in higher demand. You know, um, we have to decide what we want as producers and consumers. Is it production and consumption control or is it liberty? So I think all this talk about liberty and freedom kind of transition us, transitions us nicely into property rights. So as um, one thing that comes to mind that Ronnie Sylvester shared um, that our late friend and property rights advocate Angus McIntosh firmly believed and educated us on was that property rights are never extinguished. So I know, as you mentioned, you have your own personal story with fighting property rights with the National Heritage Area. So kind of tell our audience, what do property rights mean and what does that include, I guess? Well, we go back to the founders and the li life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. In other words, life, liberty, and property. To live in a free nation, we must have the ability to own property. And that it doesn't mean that you have own a big ranch. It doesn't mean that you farm 10,000 acres. It just means this property gives you the ability to strive for profitability in your business. Okay. So let's say, um, you know, your property might be your car that enables you to go to work. It might be your gun that enables you to put food on the table for your family. It might be yourself. It might be your home. Property can include a lot, a lot of things. And it's important to understand that the ability to use that property 
to basically put food on your table for your family and shelter is more important than any other freedom that we have. And the reason it is, is because it limits uninhibited power structures and gives you the ability to produce as you see fit in a supply and demand driven market. Well, that was perfectly put. Good job. Good job, What's property it? rights chair. I thought it was. So that leads us into another hot topic that is regarding property rights, and that is Biden's 30 by 30 plan. And yep. this has brought a lot of concern and want for more information from the ranching industry. So tell us some of the details of that 30 by 30 plan and what that means for the cattle industry. Executive Order 14008 is also known as the 30 by 30 initiative or the America the Beautiful. And what it aims to do is to voluntarily put local um, and regional lands into conservation uh, at the rate of 30% of land and water by 2030 across the United States. This will be followed up by the United Nations 50 by 50 agenda initiative that will put 50% of the world's land and water um, in conservation by 2050. Now, the reason this 14008 executive order is so concerning is because um, there are no exact um, rules that are applied to it. So if they say that um, private lands will not be taken, there's no nothing in there that says they won't. And so we see this movement, really an anti-animal agriculture movement going across the nation and the world at this moment. Um, if you'll see, you'll see a lot of it uh, being talked about in the beef industry, you know, cattle are killing the planet that came from the United, United Nations. Um, and so we have this movement uh, gaining momentum to take cattle off of the land. And so we have to combine that with what we were talking about earlier um, in all of these control initiatives being put upon our industry and then setting aside all of this um, land for conservation. Well, what is it? It'll, to me, it looks like it could be a very large land grab. And we have to be really careful about what we do with the federal government in terms of handing over future property rights um, on our own uh, productive property. So, you know, right now there's all kinds of conservation programs that have come out that are being uh, uh, initiated uh, in the central part of the United States for like the grasslands CRP program and programs such as that, that to really diminish your ability um, to produce over time. And so maybe, you know, if you've put a conservation easement on your, on your ranch, maybe that counts kind of in that but the problem with those um is that it really may not affect the current owner but it'll affect the future owners of the ranch it's all about the future and what are we going to leave for our 
for our kids and and how are we going to produce food in the, in the future so executive order uh, 14008 30 by 30 program is something that we really need to watch closely it needs monitored by your local governments um, I know my county in Colorado and several others in Colorado and the state of Nebraska have already passed resolutions against the 30 by 30 and that is gaining steam as we start to educate you know, just common uh, 10 acre owner people, you know, all across the, all across the nation, it affects all of us. Um, and we have to be really careful what rights we're giving up uh, to the future in production on our land. Uh, it can be very confusing. It can be very, very uh, confusing, but you have to be cautious because if you're going to take something, something from you will be required. And so that's where I kind of stand on that. I am against the 30 by 30 uh, initiative. And I would hope that most local governments have already passed resolutions um, against it as well. It's something that we're going to have to watch closely in terms of property rights and our ability to produce off the land. Yep. And I think that brings us into kind of this globalist society discussion that I wanted to have with you of, um, we kind of mentioned it before, of talk to us about globalism and its increasing threat on our industry and include, make sure not to leave out, the Global Roundtable for Sustainable Beef. Well, anytime, so, you know, I don't want people taking this the wrong way, but I'm a nationalist. I believe in my nation's borders. I believe that America is the greatest nation on earth and that we have been shown favor beyond what we deserve because we have tried to produce right. And um, so when you start talking globalism, all that is is the taking away of borders. And all that is is a commingling of different cultures um, and financial institutions across the globe to make one. And so I really try to educate my friends about the dangers of globalism. You know, one, one way you can kind of talk about it, you know, or I can because of my age is I can remember, you know, my dad being on the phone and he'd call up into Montana and see, see what these little calves were bringing. And then he'd call down into Florida and he'd see what they're bringing there. And there would be a vast difference and see globalism has erased all of that because everything is instantaneous now. And uh, that's, that's very dangerous. The form of communication uh, as fast as it rolls, rolls out. Um, but ultimately what it does is it delineates um, borders. And so you, when you become a one or a borderless globe, then uh, we, we have no, no longer have the initiative to strive for the things that we want to pursue. In other words, we're under the thumb of a tyrannical authoritative system. And that is not what we want in America. We want our, the next generation to do better than we have done this generation. I believe in America. I want my country to be lifted up. I want our beef to be at the forefront of all countries' beef. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with wanting the best, uh, wanting to be the best. There's nothing wrong with your wanting your country to be the best. My gosh, the bloodshed that we have 
shed over overseas in far away and foreign places uh, so that we could sit in the lap of luxury. And we do live a luxurious life in the United States under the umbrella of liberty and freedom. What a gift that has been. And so once we start uh, erasing borders, you stop receiving those gifts of liberty and freedom because not all to, not all governments are the same. I, I hope we don't have to learn the hard way on that because this is a, a very important issue. And it looks to me like every facet of every industry is becoming more globalized every day. And it, to be honest, it scares me to death. I first started hearing about the Global Roundtable for Sustainable Beef in 2009, read up on it. And I'm like, this is not what we're wanting. And basically all, all this is, is a setting of production standards from top to bottom. Uh, it's basically production and consumption control uh, of our industry. Um, they will tell you how you have to produce a pound of beef, when, where, how. Uh, it's a governance model is what it is. And it's uh, anti-freedom, it's anti-liberty, it's anti-beef, and it's anti-America. And why we have an organization in the United States called the United States Roundtable for Sustainable Beef that that is led by questionable people who have never produced a thing in their lives is it's beyond my comprehension. It's beyond that my comprehension that it is even still an issue. And it's, and I don't, I feel like it's not gaining momentum as independent producers learn more and more about it, but it's still there. And it has a lot of money. There's a lot of money in organization, powerful organizations behind it. And it's all about tracking the money and traceability and data and everything that you do, they want to know. And so I think that's very dangerous in terms of liberty, getting back to liberty and freedom. The initiative is uh, no good in my eyes. And uh, I think I would probably, of all the issues that we need to talk about, that is one issue that I'll be talking about until the day I die. That kind of production control is never a good thing under the guise of capitalism. It's just not there. Yeah. And it's scary to me that we have these large organizations that are supposed to be representing cattle producers who are involved with that in bed with World Wildlife Fund and all these other, you know, anti-agriculture companies. That's terrifying that people are behind, like people are supporting that and wanting to well, produce cattle at the same time. You can't have both. You can't serve two gods, right? So those extreme organizations, um, that are involved and have infiltrated into all industries, but especially the beef industry, um, they have a lot, a lot, a lot of untamed money and power that come to them. And so their agendas, and you don't have to look very far, all of their agendas are anti-agriculture and especially anti-beef, anti-red meat. They believe that uh, beef cattle are literally killing the planet. And so they want to rid that. So the, the very people that I watch every day produce beef that have signed on to what we call sustainability, the sustainability um, mechanism from the United Nations uh, through all aspects of production, 
um, kind of blows my mind because they're not recognizing that type of production control. They're not recognizing that the authority comes from the top down to them instead of them having the authority over their production from bottom up. And that's really the way it's supposed to be in the United States. And uh, so we have to educate. We just have to keep educating those producers. Very, very important. And consumers, because those organizations don't believe that the consumer should have a choice of what they eat. They believe that they should eat what they think they should eat. And we're seeing that more and more every day. So it's a slippery slope that we're, we're walking on. And I don't want my tax dollars um, getting in bed with those organizations that are working to kill, kill my operation and end what I do for a living and what we've done for a living for many generations. And I know there's a, you know, 700,000 other um, producers across the nation that feel the same way, but they don't understand what sustainability is. They don't understand uh, what these initiatives are because they're very quiet. They come in very quiet, just as they did with the national heritage areas. Nobody knew a thing about it. Um, uh, the global Roundtable or the world wildlife fund partnered up with our beef checkoff at one point, nobody knew a thing about it. What was it? What is it? See, there's no transparency. And so we have to start taking back our industries and that means taking back your, your government. That means taking back local control of your government and it starts locally. Uh, everybody's got to get involved. It's, um, it's all about freedom versus control. So as we see this globalism and we see right now we're seeing record numbers of imports of foreign beef entering our country. Meanwhile, the number of American ranchers is dropping rapidly for a variety of reasons. But how is this going to work with our food security as a country when we are beginning to depend on other countries for food, primarily beef? Well, if you're depending on a safe and fruitful food supply, it has to be produced within your own boundaries, within your own borders, right? Because you know what you have. It has to be spread out. It cannot be centralized. And what we're seeing now with four, uh, four packing companies, you know, controlling 85% of the beef supply chain is that they have control. They have control of not only um, what they buy, but what they import. Um, and so that control gives them leverage both up and down the supply chain. And, and when they have that kind of centralized control, it's very, very dangerous. Now, a, a nation that depends on imports for their food supply is a nation in uh, dire need of help. And I hope we don't get to that point. I see it coming uh, more and more every day. You know, let's talk about the sheep. I think we import 70 70% of lamb into the United States for, for American consumption. Um, that is very dangerous, very dangerous uh, to depend on foreign, uh, maybe adversaries. Maybe we can call them adversaries. Maybe we can call them allies for any of our production. You know, how, how much do we depend on China? China is now, one of, I believe, is one of our greatest enemies today. It is an enemy to freedom. We know that. So why are we depending on that? Uh, your food safety, which includes your production lines, your supply chains, that is national security. The, the people 
from the ground up have to have control of their supply chains because it is a national security issue. And the more we depend on other countries, the bigger trouble we get in. And I pray that we don't find ourselves in into a shortage in supply chain issues, but I fear that we are headed that way. Yeah, I think we saw perfect examples of that during COVID with the empty meat shelves, but I can't remember who said it. I think it might've been Brett of a country that can't feed itself on its own is not free. And so I think that circles back into kind of to close us out that freedom and liberty that we've been talking about this whole time. But um, anything else you want to add before we close out? Don't let money and power um, confuse you because it is, it's a big deal. The what's happening in America in terms of the taking of property at this point, both by, foreign adversaries and 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 national uh, citizens um, and governmental agencies non-governmental agencies public private partnerships it's dangerous so I think I think what I would say is hold tight to your property rights they're the most important thing and um, I will say this where there is beef there is freedom We appreciate all of your insights and what you bring to our organization. So without further ado, we always finish the podcast by asking our guests, what is your favorite cut of beef and how do you like it prepared? Oh, my favorite cut of beef is a ribeye, medium rare. Thank you, Shad, for joining us today and for sharing your passion and insights. To learn more about the 30 by 30 plan, the GRSB, and other property right issues, please visit our website or we also have videos on our YouTube channel. Stand up to the current trajectory of our industry because as Shad said, where there is beef, there is freedom. And where there is beef, there is liberty. So stay involved in the conversation and follow along at RCAPUSA on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, YouTube, and Twitter. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the RCAP USA Roundup. To learn more about RCAP USA, visit our website, www.r-capusa.com.